It's great to see you this morning. Great to be able to welcome you. Uh, and as Richard said at the start, great to uh, welcome everyone joining us on, online as well. Uh, so we're in a series at the moment in John chapter 10. Uh, and the kind of the theme that we've been exploring for a couple of weeks now is this whole thing about life in all of its fullness. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, that's what I've come to do. I've come to bring life. Not to enhance life, not to tweak life, but to give, to bring life. And not just a little bit of life. Life in all of its fullness, all of its joy, all of its hope, all of its love, all of its purpose, all of its color, all of its flavor. So that's where we've been for the last few weeks. So we're going to dive back into that chapter again this morning. John chapter 10. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, you might like to look it up. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the one who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them because his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run from them because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said to them again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when they see the wolf coming, they abandon the sheep and run away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The person runs away because they're a hired hand and care nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as my father knows me. And I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you saw the story in the paper. I think it was this week or possibly uh, the week before. Uh, but it was to do with chocolate bunnies. Anybody see this story? 
Uh, apparently, there's a certain supermarket, who we won't name for obvious reasons, uh, that was releasing a chocolate bunny that looked remarkably like another branded chocolate bunny that we won't name for, for obvious reasons. And there's been this battle going on. Uh, it's got quite fierce. There were some comments made uh, online about this being sacrilege, that someone should make a cheap version uh, of an Easter bunny. <laughs> One person even commenting that their religious freedom as a Christian was being threatened by this. I don't understand how we got there, uh, but we got there somehow. But there's been this battle going on. Well, the larger supermarket chain, oh, sorry, the larger chocolate manufacturer has beaten the supermarket chain, and now they're not allowed to make their own version uh, of chocolate bunnies. But this isn't the first time this has happened. Uh, a while ago, one supermarket was uh, selling a chocolate roll creature called Colin the Caterpillar. How many people know Colin the Caterpillar? Why caterpillars and chocolate go together, I've got no idea whatsoever. But then another brand decided that they would make their own version called Cuthbert the uh, Caterpillar. It was remarkably cheaper than the first one. And again, there's been a legal battle over who owns the rights to sell chocolate caterpillar cakes and one has won and uh, one, has, one has lost. Again, it's not the only time. Interestingly, these, these are often to do with animals as well. Uh, this is one supermarket brand here. They don't sell Cocoa Pops. No, no, it's very, very different what they sell. It's Choco Rice, uh, as advertised by a sport-obsessed monkey. It's just a coincidence, uh, that those two things. Uh, you may have noticed some of these. So these, this on the left is, is Mini Twisters. And this other thing here is totally different. It's Mini Whirls. It's, I mean, there's eight in the box, and they're made with real fruit, but they're, t they're totally, totally different things. The thing I think I loved about that one in the corner of the mini wheels is the little blue circle that says, I'm new. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not quite sure, mini wheels, that you are new. Or this one. If you don't want... This is genuine. This is genuine. If you don't want to buy chocolate penguin bars, don't worry. You can buy chocolate seal bars. I don't know why penguins and seals are the thing to sell chocolate bars, but, but there you go. Have you ever had that moment in a supermarket where you've gone to buy something and you've got to look twice at the product to work out if it was the thing you thought you were buying or not? We live in a world, don't we, where there are these fakes, where there are these substitutes, where there are these frauds. And as we come to this passage today, I'll be honest with you, this wasn't the theme I was going to speak on today. Uh, but as I was preparing this morning, I was diving into something I was going to share right at the start, and that sort of grew and grew and grew. So I don't know who this is for today, but I think it's right that I tell you this wasn't going to be what we were looking at, but it's become it. Jesus picks this image of a sheep pen built by a shepherd, dry stone wall with this gap in it where he himself will lay down his life every night, will sleep to be the, the in and out, the, the protection for the sheep. And of course, the point of this picture is that there is only one point of access. There is only one entrance and exit. So if thieves or robbers come, there is no other way in. If, if wolves or bears or lions come, there is only one way in and out. That's the point uh, of this picture. Now, Jesus has, has told them this, and John says he's used this figure of speech, but they didn't get it. So he sort of backs up a bit and, and starts again and just says to them, listen, if you haven't got it yet, that's me. I am the gate, very truly. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, 
but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. This idea of coming through Jesus is something that he picks up on a number of times in his teaching ministry. Uh, but every time it's to emphasize that he is the gate, he's the door, he's the authentic access. There's many things that look like they could be or they should be, but Jesus is really clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. And in case you didn't get it, no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Yeah, there are some parts of the Bible that are tricky to understand or uh, open to interpretation that we have to do lots of work on. This says what it says and it means what it means. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It can be translated as the true and living way. No one comes except through me. I was thinking about this verse and this theme. And it got me thinking that if there was ever going to be a theme, a subject to speak on, that was going to get you cancelled, it was probably this theme. So if you're watching online, bear, bear with us just a moment. Because as people who want to follow Jesus, but also live in a culture where there are a, a plethora of spiritualities, of, of lifestyles, of choices, uh, we, we wonder sometimes, don't we, as thoughtful people, as loving people, what does it mean to follow Jesus in our culture and in our world? You could read these words and think, well, don't they sound a bit arrogant? Don't they sound a bit intolerant? Won't people be offended? Is this a, a, an offensive thing to hold on to uh, and to believe? And because of that, I guess, for some people, uh, these kind of themes, these kind of verses can be awkward at times. Or maybe slightly embarrassing, so we might avoid talking about these kind of topics or, or thinking about them. But they're right there, aren't they? Jesus gives them to us. So what I want to do this morning is to talk about this. Does believing in Jesus, believing that he is the only way, make us arrogant, intolerant, and offensive? That's all I want to talk about this morning, so it shouldn't, shouldn't take long. Is it... Is it arrogant to believe that Jesus is the only way? Is that an arrogant thing to sing about, to talk about, to live for? I don't know if you saw the uh, story uh, a couple of weeks ago about an ancient medical manuscript that had been discovered. It dates back parts of it to the 14th and 15th century. Uh, and in it, it talks about different uh, things that you should do if you have different ailments or, or, or different struggles uh, in your body. Uh, one thing, if you've got gout, this is what they recommend, that you stuff a puppy with snail and sage, roasting it over a fire and using the fat to make a salve. So anybody got gout this morning? Or a spare puppy? We kind of need both, don't we? What a, what, a bizarre, what a bizarre sort of option. But if you went to the doctor in the 14th or 15th century, this would be one of the things that they recommended to you. Uh, equally, if you had a cataract in your eye, you were asked to mix the gallbladder of a hare with some honey and use a feather to apply it to your eye because you don't want to use anything less delicate than a feather to apply the gallbladder of a hare do you, to, to your eye. Be, that would be a ridiculous thing to do. Now, of course, life has moved on. Times have moved on. Uh, things have happened that we can test now and, and experiment. 
But the problem with those claims is not whether they were made in an arrogant way or not, or a humble way or not. The reason why you won't go and put that stuff on your eye, I hope, is whether it's true or not. And it's true, isn't it, that in our culture, we in instinctively react against arrogance. And well, sometimes we like it as long as they're saying what we like them to say. And then as soon as they say something we don't like, well, they're just, they're just arrogant. But it's possible, as much as I'm loath to admit it, it's possible to be arrogant and right or arrogant and wrong. It's also very possible to be humble and right or humble and wrong. Now, as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, humility has always got to trump uh, sorry, not Trump, I'm thinking of somebody else now. I don't know why I'm thinking of him at this point. Has uh, always got to triumph over arrogance, right? We follow the most humble, the God of the humble, the God of the, the broken. Humility has always got to trump arrogance. But truth has got to be first and foremost the most important thing. See, a, a claim in itself, words that are written down they're not necessarily arrogant or non-arrogant. It, it all depends about the person saying it, doesn't it? Uh, where's this claim coming from? Uh, is it to sort of self-aggrandize themselves? Is it about self-promotion? Or is it about truth? But the claim itself can be stood apart from and, and, and tested. So when we come to this verse, it's really important that the question we're asking is, is it true? Because if it is true, then we need to hold on to it, and we need to share it. Uh, it's a little bit like this on cigarette packets for years. They, they've come with a health warning that smoking kills. And eventually, and, and over time, those warnings have become more and more stark, haven't they? And if you've ever seen a packet of cigarettes, they often have photos of what smoking can do to your teeth and your stomach and all sorts of things. And I don't want to pick on smokers there. There's a very serious conversation going on right now whether things like alcohol and caffeine should also carry similar health warnings. But now there is a warning on every cigarette in certain brands that shows you how, much, how many minutes of your life you're taking off with every cigarette you're smoking. Now that's not a question of humility or arrogance, it's simply a question of truth. And there's a motivation behind that, isn't there? There's a reason we want people to know the health risks of smoking. And the same can be said of these words, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's a warning in those words because of the truth that they contain. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. And if you want to test that claim, here it is. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's interesting, for all the things that people do and don't believe about Jesus, you will not find a serious historian who doubts that he laid down his life, that he died on a cross. He gave his life for the sheep and the good shepherd. It's not a question of arrogance. We have the most humble Jesus offering these words in truth to us. It's interesting, isn't it? We're, we're called as people who follow Jesus to speak the truth in love. Somebody put it once brilliantly that truth without love is coercion, is control, is power. And that love without truth is manipulation. The truth and love is transformation. 
truth and love. I'm the, I, I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. See, you can't divorce the two things together. How many times in the Gospels when people begin to realize who Jesus is, his true identity, is he so quick to say, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified? The two things go so hand in hand there. So we come to the question of, is it intolerant of us? There's certain ironies, I think, over that within this one passage. One is that Jesus here is using, as he often does, a figure of speech. He's speaking in sort of parable terms here, isn't he? Uh, Because he wants people to get his message. He wants them to understand. Uh, So he's not being intolerant in saying this. He's trying to find language to convey the reality, the truth of it. So much so that when they don't get it at first, John tells us he backs up a little bit and says it again in, in, in a different way. He wants people to know that the gate is open that there may only be one way, but that way is open to each and every one of us. As somebody put it really simply, there might only be one way to God, that's Jesus, but there's many ways to Jesus. I am the gate, but that gate is open. It's interesting if you look later on in this passage, the belief, the knowledge that Jesus was the only way, far from constraining him, to intolerance, uh, means that he's got this passion. It, it kind of compels him to be as, as, as open as possible. I have other sheep, he says, that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. I have others, Jesus says. And thank goodness that he did, but otherwise we would never be included. We'd never be invited. If you stop and think about the world in which these words were said, I am the gate, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, The first century was a highly religious world. It was filled with all kinds of different beliefs and forms of worship and spiritualities. Uh, One, of course, is is this one, the Jewish way, the the temple, the system of of sacrifice and and priesthood and and law represented by the temple in Jerusalem and then uh, local synagogues then scattered wherever they could be placed uh, right throughout the nation. There's this belief uh, rooted in the heart of the Old Testament that one day there will be one flock, there will be one shepherd, that this God is inviting people in, that through uh, through them one nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But of course, it's also a time when they're oppressed by the Roman Empire. Now, one of the things that historians say uh, was sort of the brilliance of the Roman Empire, their, their strategy, uh, was they were after your land. They weren't necessarily after your love. And so they would conquer a, a place or a people, but allow them to carry on worshipping in, in whatever way they wanted to. They didn't see religion as, as a threat to their empire. And so the Roman Empire becomes this sort of patchwork quilt of different gods and uh, different forms of belief and worship, all kind of woven in together. Uh, There were gods for the weather that you would sacrifice to if you wanted safe travel uh, on a journey. There were gods of the crops that you would sacrifice to uh, at at harvest time. And all of this was going on. And it strikes me that that is important because these words don't come in a vacuum. There's one point when Jesus is talking to a guy called Nicodemus, someone who is called Israel's greatest teacher. Nicodemus comes to him at night because he can't face the public rejection 
of being cancelled because of his relationship with Jesus. And Jesus spells it out really clearly to Nicodemus, the most, probably one of the most famous verses in all, the wor- uh, in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's about the world. It's about the whoever will believe. See, for Jesus, knowing, understanding, living, uh, believing that he was the only way made him the most generous person. Time and time again, he would say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He'd find religion's rejects who'd been kicked off to go and learn their fishing business. He said, come follow me. Come and be a part of this. The most invitational person uh, ever. This is about the world. This is about the whosoever. It's interesting that his understanding of who he is, his purpose, his mission, did not make him intolerant, but made him more invitational. Finally then, is it an offensive thing? Isn't it an offensive thing? On the last night of Jesus' life, we see him eating with the disciples in a meal that we're about to share in together. And then they go to a garden called Gethsemane. In the original language, Gethsemane means a crushing place. It was a place, a grove, where all these olive trees grow. And the olives were crushed there. And Jesus goes to this place, and we can get a huge sense that his soul, his spirit, is being crushed by the weight of everything that is about to happen to him. Everything that's about to happen to him physically and everything that's about to happen to him spiritually. On the cross, he will be judged for our sin. He will be punished. He will be rejected. Why have you forsaken me? He who has known this union with the Father for all of eternity, rejected, abandoned, forsaken, so that there would be a price that is paid for the sin of the world, so that whoever believes, those things that stop us knowing God, stop us coming to God, paid with, paid for, dealt with forever because of Jesus. But the weight of it all landing on him so much so that he begins to sweat drops of blood. And in his anguish, he cries out, God, if there is any other way for this cup to pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the silence from heaven gives Jesus his reply. There's no other way. No other life that was good enough. No other life that was perfect enough to satisfy God's righteous demands. The, the law is fulfilled in Jesus and in Jesus alone. If Jesus was to be another option among many, then the Father was brutally cruel in expecting him to die on a cross. There was no other way. But that knowledge drives Jesus. See, when we say that there is no other way, sometimes it can sound arrogant, but within it is is held, if you'll see it, the nugget of this divine love, this divine compassion, this divine mercy. It's not like there's no other way. It's like there was no other way. 
but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I don't know how many people uh, recognize this guy. Uh, anyone who's a fan of, of magic or magic tricks may recognize him as one half of, of Penn and Teller. Uh, widely regarded as one of the biggest minds in, in magic. They've got a, a show called Fool Us, where people come on and do a trick. Uh, and it's their sort of job to work out how that trick was done. I don't know if you've, if, if you've ever seen it. So a, a great mind for sort of dismantling things and seeing kind of illusion and those kind of things. Uh, he's also a renowned atheist. He's spoken about this. He's, he's written about this. Uh, and he's got a very adamant uh, place that he stands. It, there is no God. Uh, but a couple of years ago, after one show, somebody came up to him with a Bible. And they have this chat together. And the guy apparently has some sort of impact. They leave some impression uh, on him uh, and write something in, in the Bible. Now, one of the things about um, Penn is that he... Um, has, does this vlog thing, this, uh, records little messages every day. Uh, and a couple of days after this happens, he, he records this video where he's talking about this person who's giving him a Bible. And one of the things he says is that people often speak to him about faith and God, I think because he's quite a famous atheist. And other people ask him, does that bother you? you know? does, does that offend you? And he said this, that actually, if you believe, that you've got the only way to eternal life and you don't tell me, you'd have to hate me. Isn't it funny how often sometimes a non-Christian says it better than we do? <laughs> you'd have to really hate me. You know, it'd be like discovering the cure for cancer, but then for the sake of all the other medical options, keeping it to yourself. You'd have to hate me, he said, not to want to tell me. See, it doesn't have to be offensive. Sometimes those who've claimed to follow Jesus and speak for him have been offensive. But the way in which we share this wonderful truth, that this gate, the only way is open, does not have to be offensive. So what I'd love us to do just as we come to this table today is to think about where we are. I'd love you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'd love you to imagine that just before you is this field. And in the middle of this field there is a sheep pen. And inside it there is protection, and provision, as a good shepherd who's willing to lay down his life to protect you. And this morning, I want you to think about where you are. Do you know his voice? Are you following where he's going, what he wants, what he says? Do you know this love, this grace? Because the gate is open. The price is paid 
The only thing stopping you going in is you.